1: Ruth Coker Burns to mark World AIDS Day. She is an incredible person. If you haven't heard part one, go get it in the feed. If not, here's part two. And we're straight off. We're talking about food. There was a lot of food going on. You did amazing things with food. And as the crowd of people you were looking after grew bigger and bigger, you were suddenly having to cater for huge amounts of people, right?
2: I was. And I was even dumpster diving. I mean, I never thought I'd be dumpster diving but i thought you know i had seen what they put in the dumpsters and the Mm -hmm. bread is all wrapped up and tied you know and the vegetables a lot of them were in plastic or bags of potatoes and cartons of milk and cottage cheese and butter and all these wonderful things to gain make them gain weight Mm -hmm, and mm so um I would go and make my run of the, I'd take my daughter to school and I'd go check. I had three dumpsters that I really liked and I knew what days they, you know, put things out. And after a while, they started leaving everything outside the dumpster. Because
1: they knew you were coming. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There were people who sort of silently helped you, weren't there, throughout this? And there was a doctor, I'd love you to tell me more about, who kind of, um, because word sort of got out locally that you were doing this and people were not impressed because, well, one thing that a lot of people said to you was that you were endangering other people because you were going near, you know, near people with AIDS and then you were going to spread it because no one knew where it was coming from at that point.
2: We were actually at a funeral, and I realized that Chip, I knew somebody was coming in and bathing Chip and shaving him in the mornings, and I didn't know who it was, and he never said, and I would mention, like, wow, you look really good today, and you shaved, and he go, yeah, I did, and I knew he didn't. Oh, and
1: so tell me who Chip was again.
2: Chip was my guy that he was um, – He was raised in this little tiny sawmill town. And if working at the sawmill was good enough for your daddy, it was good enough for you. And you didn't have to learn to read to work at the sawmill. But Chip got out and he went to college and he made it to Washington, D.C. as the president of the Young Democrats. Mm. He was going places. He was good looking. He was everything. And then he came home with AIDS. And he was buried in a cardboard casket. And if I had known they were going to bury, his family did it. And if I had known, his family rejected him. His mother said, leave this town. I don't want you here. I, You know, when I sent you away the first time, I didn't expect you to come back. Well, he didn't Mm. either. Trust me. And they just had a cloth-covered cardboard casket. And Don and I carried his casket to his grave. So Don started, he was a pediatrician in town. And uh, there was always rumors about him being gay. And a lot of the parents wouldn't let their sons get their football physicals from him. He had a a beautiful wife and five beautiful children but he was seeing Chip on the side, and I think they had been friends for a long time. And so um, he started doing my testing for me.
1: So he's the one who came up to you at the funeral and yes. said, I'll test people, yes. but, but don't tell anyone. Yeah, Bring it, them after hours, wasn't that it? Was that
2: was it. I would take, the clinic would open at 9 o'clock at night for me to start bringing in people through the back door. And the Arkansas legislature, because, you know, they're so smart, they uh, made it against the law to do anonymous testing, Hmm. but they didn't put a penalty on it. (laughs) So we had this director of the AIDS program for the state health department under Dr. Jocelyn Elders, and he was paying to keep his Back then we called them lovers instead of husbands or companions or anything. Mm. To keep his lover at home to play house and cook for him and clean and plan these big parties. And uh, he was spending AIDS money that we didn't have on his boyfriend instead of buying AZT for the people it was meant to go to. Shocking. I. I had a bunch of people come in and test, and I had like Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and Minnie Mouse and Mickey Mouse and stuff. He called me, and he said, I don't want to see any more of these fake names come through here. I'd better see a real name and a real Social Security number. I said, okay, Henry, whatever you want. So I got those (laughs) same people to come back the next week, and I tested everybody, and they were in on this whole thing. They knew what I was doing. So I tested him and I put down my name and social security number about 20 times. And Henry called one note, What the hell are you trying to do? I said, Well, Henry, I didn't feel well last week and I just felt a little virusy. He said, I had better not see your name and social security number come through my office one more time. Okay, Henry. So the next week, I put Henry's name and social security down for everybody. And I said, how do you want to play this game, Henry? Because I think I'm winning.
1: (laughs) No matter what they threw at you, you just came up with a better plan and a way to get around it. I love it. Yeah. Because then you started stockpiling medicine, didn't you? I did. And you you would ask different patients for bits of AZT, which was the treatment, for anyone who doesn't know, it was sort of one of the first treatments for AIDS that was, it was a very, very... Cracking a nut with a sledgehammer, I suppose, is
2: what All it did is it turned their fingernails black, but it gave them hope.
1: Mm.
0: And
2: hope is all they needed. They just needed a little bit of hope because they knew that day after tomorrow, there would be a vaccine or something would come out to cure this.
1: Mm. And do you, when you see what's happened with COVID, and I'm sure you've been asked this question a lot, but do you ever feel cross about COVID? And how it's been dealt with <laughs> compared to well,
2: yeah, I do. I um, yeah, I do. I um, you know, people were running to people with COVID to take care of them, and they were putting on the mask, and they were putting on these big spacesuits, and they had things mm. across their you know scars. And I admire the people that were doing it, and the nurses that were ta- and doctors that were taking care of them. But where were they when AIDS was there? And AIDS mm. wasn't nearly as contagious as COVID. Mm. And, mm. you know, they just couldn't get to the people fast enough or get enough of them in the hospital to take care of everybody. And there was no one, no one there for AIDS patients.
1: You know, people say, oh, I think actually you said this. There was no, with COVID, there was no them and us. No. Whereas with AIDS, it because it was deemed to be a gay disease there was a them and us
2: yes and i was the face of aids and i Mm. was the face of the gay community and so and i was straight so i had to hear or i got to hear every evil thought that they thought about gay men and pedophiles because they think all gay men are pedophiles i'm like no 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 it's just awful but I got the vitriol that everybody wanted to tell a gay person if they mm. just knew one if they saw one they would tell them all this stuff but instead they told
1: me. Yes. And tell me a bit more about the personal ramifications of this because we're talking about a time where even after it was cuz you went and researched didn't you uh or, or went you know and found papers that said how and why it was transmitted and it was definitely through exchange of fluids and it was sex and and various other things. So you felt that you were very much safe to continue doing what you're doing, this amazing work.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I would wear gloves if I had to clean up vomit or blood or anything. I was very careful with how, you know, we didn't even have, there was no such thing as universal precautions back Mm, then. mm -hmm. That came out of the AIDS crisis. and. You know the envelopes that you peel off and stick instead of licking them and stamps that you just peel off and put on the envelope those were because of AIDS because wow. people were terrified that they would get a letter in the mail that somebody with AIDS had licked the stamp or the envelope
1: wow 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 yeah gosh
2: yeah it was that bad
1: you know you'd done your research it was it was it was publicly available information but people still chose to see what you were doing as wrong you know that was very much perceived as that just tell me a bit about how that felt what the real ramifications of that were because I remember you saying that for example you were certain that if people knew they would try and take your daughter from you
2: oh yeah yes her daddy um, died in an automobile accident in 1988 when she was six years old and um Mm. So people thought that he died of AIDS. They thought that was why I was doing the work, which wasn't true. And she came in one day and she said, where's daddy's death certificate? And I said, well, it's in here. Why? She goes, well, I've got to go show Davis because he said daddy died of AIDS and he died of a car accident. And she Mm. had to have been 10 years old. Why are people doing that to her? She was never invited to a single birthday party in her entire life except one and the the little girl had changed the time on the invitation and we showed up after it was over.
1: And was that because they thought she would bring AIDS to yes. the party?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Wow. And the church wanted her out, this woman tried to get her out of the children's choir because her Mm -hmm. daughter was in the children's choir and her daughter was so precious she couldn't be in it if allison was in it
1: and how did that manifest on a day-to-day basis if you're walking down the street you became a really well-known figure in your town (laughs) yeah what was that like how did it feel did you feel defiant did you
2: you know i i guess i was born defiant i don't know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i don't know i hope it doesn't always show i try to be a lady but um you know it was it was mainly in my church it was mainly in all the churches because i had contacted all of them to see if i could get someone to come out and say i felt so bad burying people myself and i'm not a preacher or anything and i thought back then i thought well they need a they need a real preacher to you know send them off and then i realized no they don't need a real preacher to send them off i'm just a, you know i'm better than they are because i'm not a hypocrite
1: absolutely
2: and you know i wasn't included in a lot of things like you know they were playing Someone in my class—they were playing. They had these bunko nights, and I don't even know what bunko is. But I thought, well, the whole group's going to be there. I'd like to go too. And they go, we already have enough players. Oh, thank you. Okay, I'll sit at home. Wow. So it was kind of like that. And then I would take potluck. You know, like I'm a really good cook, and I take something that I knew their wives didn't cook for the husbands, and because they would bring like stuff from Walmart and these little containers and. I would do something fabulous and I would go back and my food would be on the back bar, you know, on the back. They wouldn't even put it out for people to eat.
1: And that exclusion that you were up against when you were doing amazing work while also, by the way, raising your daughter, holding down a job, you weren't paid to do any of the work that you were doing, coordinating a whole situation across you know medication accommodation because you found everyone accommodation you know you got people on social security and you know support uh, uh, men suffering with aids dying of aids and has anybody ever apologized to you (laughs) after that i had
2: i had one man and he was the pastor that I was on the finance committee when I was 25 years old, and I was so proud of it. And Dr. Hayes put me on the finance committee. And, you know, I wasn't even good at math, but I thought, Mm. wow, this is a very prestigious place to be. And I thought that I would grow with the church and I would become an elder someday. And, you know, I was just very proud of the work that I had done. And so I went to him one day at a meeting, and before it started, I said, uh, Dr. Hayes, could I have one room in the breezeway outside for a support group meeting for my AIDS patients? And he looked at me and took his glasses off, and he said, surely you're not talking about bringing those people into this church, are you? And I dug my heels in and I said, oh, no, Dr. Hayes, I'm not talking about bringing those people into hmm. this church. I'm talking about walking those people across your new $30,000 lawn we just had installed for you into your new $300,000 house the church just bought to you and setting them on your $60,000 worth of new furniture we just bought to you. That's <laughs> what I intend on doing with those people. Mm. And he took me off the finance committee. But later on at a potluck, he came up to me to apologize. And I didn't feel that, well, number one, I didn't need his apology. And I was so mad at him for taking me off the finance committee and because that had nothing to do with AIDS, And um, I didn't accept his apology. I go, you know what? That's something you need to take up with my guys. And God, mm-hmm, I mm. am not qualified. It's above my pay grade to accept your apology.
1: Mm, but amazing that he apologized.
2: But I don't know if he was just an old man trying to get into heaven at that point. <laughs> or, yes. it, or if he was sincere. I think he was sincere, mm. but um, mm. I don't know.
1: When you see that level of that dismissiveness from someone who's supposed to be a you know in their role a shepherd does that make did that make you question religion and your own faith
2: never have ever questioned my own faith ever ever but religion I don't really have any use for it nowadays Mm -hmm. you know I can bury somebody and you know I've never married anyone but I've been there at the most You know, people think, oh, a baby's born, that's the most precious part of life. But to me, it's the dying part. When you're there, it is so intimate. And you're there at that point where they stop breathing and their heart stops beating and they ascend to heaven. And I don't think that you can, I don't know, that's just the most special part of life to me.
0: And the best part about Quince, they
1: exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Having experienced so much, and I was so struck by how many incredible people you met because you were looking after them, but then ultimately they always died right. because you met them because they had AIDS and right. then and you know billy who became your closest friend as well how does that make you feel about your own concept of death
2: you know i always felt like i was taking them and putting them on a plane or a train or a trailways Mm. bus to go across the country and i might see them again someday and i might not Mm. but Mm. you know here's your here's your sack lunch and give me a hug and I hope the best for you and you know I just felt like I was sending them off and I always felt like I was also at the same time carrying them across the river of death and handing them to the people who loved them, the people who loved them on earth, the people whose couches they surfed on until they had to finally give up and come home. And so, you know, I i don't know. I just have always had a, a real peace about death.
1: And about your own?
2: I think so, because they told me I was going to die, and I knew I wasn't. But mm. I felt like I was. <laughs> and I, have you know, had blood clots in both of my lungs just getting ready to go into my heart. You ought to see right. them on. Uh, I don't even know how I made it to the hospital in time. But I've never felt that I was going to die at that moment. I felt like I Mm. wanted to die. I've been that (laughs) sick, but I don't fear death.
1: Do you think that's because you've seen a lot of it, or do you think that's just you?
2: I think it's probably both. You know, and I've studied death, like with the body, you know, you sit there and you've sat through so many of them that you just try to figure something different, like this vein right here. How many times does it beat after they quit? breathing
1: Mm.
2: you know or how many times this until they're not here anymore
1: it's it's so funny isn't it because people just don't talk about death that potentially we're getting better at it but i remember when my dad was very sadly dying in hospital and no none of the nurses or anyone said to us properly what was going on they no one ever said it Right. And you only realize through what they're not saying, what's actually going on, which I found really frustrating because I just kind of like to be given the facts. Right. But I remember sitting on my laptop next to his bed, Googling what, what breathing, because he was doing that funny Chang thing. where spokes
2: you spokes breathing. Yes. Yeah.
1: Where you breathe. Yeah. <gasps> And then you stop breathing for like two minutes and then you breathe again, right? Which nobody knows about. Right. And...
2: That's Chain Stokes breathing or it's called the death rattle.
1: Yes. And I sat there going, How am I in a hospital and I'm Googling this? Right. Because no one's telling me, no one will tell me anything.
2: That's horrible. Right.
1: We don't talk about it. It's so silly because it's going to happen to all of us.
2: Right. And the more you talk about it, the easier it is to me. Mm. But, mm. um, you know, most people don't want to talk about death. They're afraid of, you know, I know people who have lived, you know, they're at the end of their life and you think, when are they ever going to die? Because they've been dying for so long and they can't take any more pain and they can't take any more, but they just won't die. And it's the people who are afraid of what's going to happen to them that don't want to die. The ones that think they might have Kissed a man and they're going to hell. And they know they're going to hell because the church and their family tell them. And they're just not sure. Those are the ones that, and even in straight people's lives, the people who think they've done, just like uh, my partner of 30 years died last summer.
1: Sorry to hear that.
2: Thank you. He had early onset Parkinson's. He got it when he was 50. And it was, it's a brutal disease and it ate him up. But he just kept hanging on, but he was afraid that he had done something in his life, and maybe he did, I don't know, that was so awful that he wouldn't be accepted with God. And Mm -hmm. I don't believe in hell. I think we're in hell here on earth. (laughs) And I've been in hell many times here on earth. And I just don't believe that a loving, well, my God doesn't send people to burn for the rest of eternity. My God's a loving God.
1: You deal with everything that you've done, which is so amazing, with such a lightness of touch and that, you know, it feels to me like, well, it's inevitable. That's what you have to do. I have to help these people. But do you also feel proud of what you've done? Do you? Is there a sense of that? And you look back on that younger you and...
2: I'm very proud of her. I'm very proud of me. I'm very proud of my guys. They're the ones, they're the heroes in this story, not me. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of what I was able to accomplish. I mean, I, you know, I just sat in church and I, I wanted to raise my daughter in church. And, you know, I'm a New Testament girl. I'm not an Old Testament girl. And uh, luckily, my church was New Testament. And, you know, I'm a red letter in the Bible, girl. You know, Jesus told us to do these things. And I thought that I was teaching my daughter exactly what Jesus told us to do in the Bible, to love one another, to take care of each other, to feed the hungry, to clothe the you know, to do everything. And it doesn't take but a minute to do something for somebody.
1: Yes. and. And your your daughter kind of shared that she is, in. you had a lovely conversation, didn't you, where you kind of said, what did you think of those times yeah. when, because, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice for her as it well. Because, and she shared that she was so proud of you as well. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what, you know, World AIDS Day comes around every year and, and I wonder what it means to you this year.
2: Well, that's Billy's birthday. It's December 1st. Really? Yeah. And so I always, you know, it's always a happy day for me because it's his birthday, but it's also a very poignant and sad day for the people that we've lost and the people who are still becoming infected. And, um, you know, they think, oh, well, that's an old man disease back in the 1980s and I'm not going to get it. And if I do, I'll just take a pill. No, 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 no. You know, it wrecks your body. Any way that you can keep from getting HIV or any virus, the better off you are. And, you know, I know that the young gay men go, well, I'd rather have 25 years of great sex than 50 years of no sex. Well, that's not how it works. And, you know, take care of yourself and have 50 years of great sex. But they don't they don't get that.
1: Mm. and would you just tell me a little bit about well tell everyone listening a little bit about billy because i was struck and correct me if i'm wrong but it felt like it was such a strong friendship but he was one of the only people you met before they had hiv or aids it was a friendship that wasn't actually destined to end necessarily but then he contracted it is that right
2: Yes. oh my gosh he was the most beautiful man and the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And he had such grace and poise and just, he was funny. And he could hold a stage and work a room like nobody's business. And even his last performance where he weighed less than 75 pounds and he was up on that stage, you weren't sure that he wasn't going to fall down, but there were two or three or four lines of people on either side of the stage with 50 and $100 bills lined up just to give him money.
1: For his drag show.
2: Oh, yes. And he worked that room. and I mean, he just was magnificent. And he mm-hmm. put on a show that, you know, just like if he was healthy. And when Billy died, the bar basically broke up.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, mm-hmm. the basically broke up.
1: And this was the what was the name of the bar our, again? Our sorry, house, our, our house. Our house. It was uh-huh. the big kind of gay bar, was, drag bar.
2: Yes, is that right? yes, yes.
1: Local to you, and and it, uh, it was a real hub, wasn't it? It
2: was. And our little town gets six and a half million tourists a year. It's the second most visited national park in the nation. So we had a lot of people at the bar and in town, and I had to. I knew that I had to do something because the men that came into town married weren't married in town, trust me. And they were going to the parks and they were going to the bar. And Mm. so that's why I had to do sex education for drag queens. Here I'm teaching grown men what to do with their, you know, dicks and you know here i'm a straight blonde you know pretty woman so it was kind of weird and uh but i would have these uh great things set up and people they would uh, this one thing um a pony cot do you know what that is a pony condom they're about this big and they're about that big about that big around
1: wow that's pretty wide for anyone listening this sort of Two foot by one foot
2: <laughs> it is and they put it on a, a dummy horse or cow and they get the male to inseminate that condom and then they take that condom and inseminate cattle with it or horses oh,
1: okay yeah
2: and so yeah. my cousin was getting ready to inseminate some cows and i was out there watching him or helping him or whatever and I just got the idea, you know, can I have one of these? And he goes, you got a big date? And I'm like, I hope so. <laughs> we'll see. And then uh, there's like these little finger cuts that you put on your finger if you cut it and you don't want to get like. Yeah. So, you know, they're like little finger size. And then I had condoms of different sizes. Yes. And I had them blown up on a pegboard. And the guys would come in, they'd go, oh, that's me right there. And, of course, they were the pony condom, of course. And <laughs> Some guy go, I've seen yours. You're this little finger cot. And <laughs> I am not. I'm this over here. So they, it was something fun for them. And it yes. broke the ice. And I would say, well, so, and I had these T-shirts that said, I do. Do you? Well, that could be, I believe in Jesus. Do you? Or I practice safer sex. Do you? Well, I don't know what's safe and what's not. Oh, well, Crisco's not safe, but this Mm. is safe. So they just had to answer a few questions, and they got that great T-shirt. And so I just felt like, you know, you can't stop a pandemic if you don't know how to stop it. Mm. And we knew that condoms were the only way to stop it back then.
1: And you got out there and you taught people.
2: I did. I had lunch Um, with the big madam in town every Thursday, just so I could pick her brain on how do you make a man wear a condom more than once?
1: What was her answer?
2: Well, she had lots of ways.
1: (laughs) What is next for you, Ruth?
2: You know, I don't know right now because I was supposed to have a book tour and I didn't Mm. get that because of the pandemic and... I would love to come back to the UK and, mm. uh, you know, everybody, I'm supposed to be in Ireland in uh, February. Oh, really? Yeah. Good. So uh, I'm still speaking and I'm still, I need to get that back up and going again so mm. I can, you know, get out and talk to more people and and teach more people, you know, Put your damn cell phone down. Put it in your pocket. Don't get it out of your pocket. Leave it in your purse. People Mm -hmm. are always asking me, well, how can I, you know, they raise their hand, how can I be a hero? Well, you don't want to be a hero. That's not how you start out. You just want to help somebody. And even if you only help one other person in life, if you just help somebody that you meet on the street and never see them again, that might be their miracle that might be the one thing that they've prayed for and you don't know that.
1: Well, it's compassion. Yeah. Very few people deliver as much compassion in a lifetime as you have. So it's it's amazing. And thank you.
2: Oh, well, thank you. I wouldn't have done anything different.
1: What a wonderful woman. What an incredible story. Thank God or anyone or whatever denomination for people like her. Let us know what you thought of that. Hello at Homo sapienspodcast.com. Send me your agony uncles. We will endeavor to answer them. Get in touch, stay connected on Instagram, Homo sapiens, Facebook, Homo sapiens podcast. Next week's episode, I'm gonna be speaking to the brilliant Nick Dadani comedian actor he's just been in waitress on broadway he uh was famously in a show called atypical and he's so funny he went viral when he started making jokes about being a gay indian man and he is such a trailblazer in that sense because you know more people are following suit and he uh is he's at that very forefront of south asian voices in comedy expressing their queerness he's such a lovely man he's really funny so i'm going to be chatting to him also it's small business day so we're going to be talking to i want to know about tell me about small lgbtq plus businesses send me small lgbtq plus businesses that you know and love and we'll give them a shout out on the show if you work for one or if you know of one that you use i'm going to be talking to the amazing spanners with manners who are lesbians who are mechanics basically and they're. i love them i follow them on instagram uh, someone sent them to me one of the listeners sent them to me anyway so we're going to have a chat with them about being lgbtq plus subverting expectations of jobs and what kind of jobs you know women and men are supposed to have and all that fascinating stuff thank you listeners thank you for listening loads of love